Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, this is the, for listeners, it's the start of Holy Week, and we are upcoming on Easter in about a week. Yes, we are coming up on Easter. And uh, I was semi-dreading this episode simply because this will be what our, I guess, our fourth Easter episode since we've started. And uh, mm-hmm. can you believe it? We're in our fourth year of doing this. Um, it will be our fourth Easter episode. And I just was afraid of not having anything new to say. Okay, so, you're going like, to get mad at me. But it's like you always bring those same brownies. Yes. And like you're like, oh, we don't have to do Easter because we did it before. I'm like, no, I've got something new to say. And here you are with your brownies. <laughs> bringing the same thing well, every time you're, you you bring food somewhere. Perhaps there is something new to be gained. And, you know, you're right about that. There is certainly always something different that we could say. But like I never feel or at least for the last two Easter's, I've never felt like I've had anything new to say. And even today, it's going to be that way. I don't have anything really new to say, just a different perspective to come from. And that's really it. And that's, for the most part, what we do on this show anyway, is just bring things from a different perspective. Right. Yeah. So uh, that is basically all I am going to do today. And I shouldn't say it's all I'm going to do. I do think it's a significant perspective, especially considering the things that have uh, you know gone on this week. But uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, hopefully it goes well. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway, where do we want to start? I don't know because I had, uh, I I could start. <laughs> I could always start talking. Well, let me get some uh, prefatory things out mm-hmm. of the way first. Uh, the direction uh, that Derek and I have spoken about going this week about the, uh, we, we, we wanted to talk about the women of Easter. Um, we, we, we've touched upon this over the last couple of years, like just grazed the surface of this, but we haven't really dedicated an Easter episode to focusing on them. And it seemed especially appropriate for, you know, a few reasons. Uh, first of all, at least half the members of the church are women. The ratio of active women to men is like three to one. The ratio of Temple recommend holding women to men is as high as seven to one in some areas. And the ratio of women to men who follow this podcast on social media is nearly nine to one. So it it, it stood to reason that uh, focusing on the women of Easter would make a lot of sense because for one thing, there's a lot to learn from him, but also, um, you know, we talk about centering the marginalized in Mormonism here, and there's not a doubt in our minds that women are among the most marginalized uh, populations. Uh, simply because they're half the membership in here. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one thing. Uh, second thing, though, is uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. In fact, I don't want to talk about it at all because there have already been people to uh, treat it really well. In fact, I can put a link to the uh, Exponent article in the uh, notes here. But the second reason was there was Renlund's talk at Women's Session of Conference and the uh, fallout over that. Uh, Like it was rumored that the brethren would say something about Heavenly Mother and the lot fell on Renlund to basically 
say nothing new except to discourage people from praying to Heavenly Mother, among other things. Seeking a connection to the Divine Feminine, that isn't really new, but there has been a recent buzz around her, more conversation around her, even events organized uh, for the purpose of centering her. So it just felt appropriate to again talk about Easter from a woman's perspective uh, for that Mm -hmm. reason, as a kind of a counterweight there. And then finally... Uh, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Derek, but there was this curious graphic put out by some Desnet person on Twitter. Yeah, I know. It was evil. uh, Dude, it was it was a lot. It was like it would be. You know why it's evil? It's because they didn't list us. You know what? I'm going to use that to our advantage. So (laughs) ain't no sweat off my brow. We'll just have to try harder for next year. Assuming they do this graphic again. Right. I want uh, them to say about me the same things that religious leaders said about Jesus. That's how I know I'm I'm good, right? If people aren't mm-hmm. accusing me of being in league with Satan like uh um they did with Jesus, if they don't want to throw him me off a cliff, they don't want to crucify me. If people aren't mad about mm-hmm. what I'm doing, I'm not doing the work of Christ. So Right. So y'all know what we're talking about because I didn't really say it yet. There's this graphic out there by some Desnet person when they made a list. They made two lists. In one list, there is True Prophets, which is basically all 15 of the brethren. And in the other list is the other column is a False Prophets in Mormonism. Uh, that You know, like I said, the True Prophets were the brethren. And on the false side, it was like 16 different influencers that a lot of us know. 11 of those influencers were women. And the majority of the male uh, influencers on that list were queer. Uh, all people that we got a lot of respect for, including our friends, the Faithful Feminists, who uh, who made the who made the All Star team, and they're doing some incredible work that they unfortunately can't do at church because space is not really made for it. That's that's why they're there. That's why Derek and I are here. We we can't really do what we're doing here right. at church. So it's not and it's not a coincidence that on that list only. Three of those names belong to cis straight men. It's not a coincidence that mm. most and the of the ones people that, that did followed are actually known for their work uh, of, of LGBT advocacy. Mm-hmm. I think I, I don't have the list in front of me, but I remember the the, the straight ones like Papa Ostler, known for LGBT right. advocacy. Him being on that list is just bizarre to me. By the and way, and same with Ben Shalati. Ben Shalati is more orthodox than mm-hmm. straight people, right? Because he has right. to be. In the right. church, like, like he has said nothing, he nothing even that I know of, um, right? Uh, that would all contradict the the, the status quo in the church. So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to say I don't want to talk too much. Like I'm not, I'm still not talking about specific conference talks or quoting them or discussing them. But I do want to say something about Heavenly Mother, and it's this. Like the homophobes in the church are hypocrites and they self-contradict all the time depending on which mm-hmm. kind of um, which kind of oppression they're trying to do. For example, they loudly say when talking about same gender parents and adoption and stuff like that, they say every child needs a relationship with a mommy and a daddy or else the kid will turn out distorted. They say that. Like, every, every kid needs a mommy and a daddy and all, everyone. Well, first of all, uh, that's not just an attack on 
uh, the dignity of same gender parents, which is also single parents, right? There's all there's all sorts of problems with this. But the other problem is, what about when it comes to Heavenly Mother? Why don't we need to cultivate a relationship with Heavenly Mother? Like we, in terms of our correlated material in the church, we don't know her name. We don't know any of her words. We don't know um, her personality, her role in the plan of salvation. We don't know we don't know anything except her gender, right? We're reducing her to a a function. By we, I mean uh, the the status quo uh, uh, presentation. Uh, and essentially, all all we're doing is is having the essentially the only function she serves is to remind everyone loudly that Heavenly Father isn't gay. Right. That's all she's there for mm-hmm. is to just remind you that straight marriage only is the okay thing. Other than that, we don't need Heavenly Mother. We don't need to talk about her. We don't need to uh, have a relationship with her. We don't need to talk to her. We don't need to love her. We don't need to have like I don't know what they're saying. If and what does that do for women in the church? Like your highest goal and dream is apparently they uh, the leaders want us to think is to become a, a invisible and unknown and not allowed to talk to your children right like and yeah i don't know what they're doing but my point is that they're they're contradicting themselves all the time they just can't they haven't thought through these things for half a second um right but i better not talk about too much about that or else we won't have time for easter no it's fine so uh, let me just finish this thought oh okay um no, it's all good. Uh, but like just going back to that list, I, I was just going to say that it's not a coincidence that most of the people on that list are mostly women, are mostly queer affirming, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. at least making an effort to, which is like the like nearly everybody on that list is fully affirming. Mm-hmm. Like I can only look at three people on that list who have not been or two people on that list who have not been fully affirming. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. it's because women are, they know what it is to be marginalized, what it is to have their voices not valued and not heard. And these women are doing the work of making sure that living our baptismal covenants includes validating them and others in similar positions. So that is why I yeah. think they are on this list. And uh, that's why I also think they are doing good and necessary work. And just one of many reasons I feel like mm-hmm. we, it is appropriate mm-hmm. for us to talk about Easter uh, from this perspective to just kind of counterbalance that and also honor the work that uh, so mm-hmm. many of the women out there are doing for the church. Yeah, and I just want to say that we can't speak for women. Uh, we can't speak on behalf of women, but we can mm-hmm. speak to the sources uh, that that speak to women's issues, right? I, I think we can definitely also uplift and amplify uh the work of women, the voices of women as we see them in the text and have that conversation. Of course, remembering that women are not going to be a monolith and we have to be sensitive to that as well. But we can do what we can because there's some people... I saw this cartoon. um, I can't remember what exactly how it goes, but it was hilarious. It was like some board meeting and a woman on the board said something really amazing and important and insightful. And then a man said, well, I'm going to repeat what she said so that people will actually hear it. And I think something is is very true 
that about that. Uh, that for all the wrong reasons, absolutely, uh, we are uh, socialized to listen to men, and mm-hmm. people uh, for all the wrong reasons might listen to us instead of listening to to women, and so we can use that microphone that we have to amplify these perspectives. So let's go ahead and certainly look at I, I sort of had some preliminary preliminary remarks and let me try to make these quick I don't know how that's possible but the first thing is uh, many Latter-day Saints might not realize that in liturgical churches that have a lectionary there is a particular psalm that is almost always paired with the readings for Easter and it's Psalm 118 and it's paired uh, with the resurrection in a couple of places in the New Testament as well uh, and the centrality of Christ. But Psalm 118, verse 22, is the one that says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And I really like that, because that's exactly what happened on Easter, that crucified by the religious authorities was raised up. And the one rejected by the world, one rejected by the religious institutions, ended up also the one uh, lynched by law enforcement as well in front of his mother. Yes, sir. You know? Yes, sir. And so all of this gets uh, over, overdone, overdone, what's it? Overturned or done over, redone by God. Another uh, verse that I like is, why do you look for the living among the dead in Luke 24, verse 5? I just think I keep coming back to that. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And this is what the angel says to uh, says to the women at the tomb. Why they're why mm-hmm. they why they're there? And I want to put that on my closet, the closet that I came out of, uh, so that if anyone goes there looking for me, it says to them, "Why do you look for the living among the dead? I'm not there anymore. My closet's empty." And so the resurrection is a coming out. It's a coming out of the tomb, a coming out of the closet, a coming out into new life, and especially a coming out into a life that can never go back the way it was. That's why I make it analogous to the closet or make it analogous to Egypt, however you want to do that. I also want to talk about one spiritual practice that I have. And I can't remember where I read this, but it was in a spirit. I read it first in a Latter-day Saint publication, I think. So let me go back and talk about the this particular spiritual practice that I read about in a Latter-day Saint publication, I think. And I can't remember what it was. And here's what I do. I go early Easter morning around sunrise or as soon as the cemetery opens, they don't they're typically not open at night. But I go to a local cemetery. I don't have any loved ones in any cemetery around me, so I just go and look at random graves. And I visit the cemetery and walk around among all the uh, all the folks there. And usually I'm the only one. But what I'm doing is I'm visiting a grave site just like the women did on Easter morning, and I'm retracing the steps of the women witnesses of the first Easter. And so I'm there, I'm like anticipating, and I'm marking the resurrection. I am looking at death. I'm looking at all these grave graves, and I'm thinking those will not have the victory in the end. 
I know it. And I ponder all of those that are lying in their graves now as I look over all of them. And I am with Christ now awaiting the final defeat of death, the resurrection of all. And I just think that's a bit because there's so much about bunnies and eggs. And I'm like, yeah, there's there's a there's room for that. But for me, Easter is always the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And I want to tie this to uh, an important quote by Joseph Smith. Here's And it's been quoted uh, many times in many places. But here's what how Joseph summarized our faith. Quote, The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven. And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 3, page 30. What I want to name here is we've got a really cultural distortion going on in the church. Um, so for many... What do you mean by that? Many of us... The church is about some of these external matters, like the word of wisdom or how you dress or whether or not you watch R-rated movies or all these other boundary markers. And that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, as Joseph says right here. And all these other things are merely appendages. They are... uh, they're going they're sort of associated with and pointing to Christ but they aren't the center so let me just say it more plainly all of you that are boasting in your temple marriage okay your your temple marriage your precious temple marriage is only an appendage it is not the focus it is not the goal it is not the beginning it is not the end Jesus is the alpha and the omega not your temple marriage same thing with families like Yay, family. Okay, fine. But your family is an appendage to Christ. All of these other things that uh, no matter who they are speaking in the church, if they're not focusing on Christ, they are not focusing. And so they'll make it about something else. They'll make it about these other cultural things. And yes, those are important. We do have covenants around family. We do have covenants around the temple. We have do all, we have this stuff, but they are merely appendages. They are instruments to point towards Christ. And they should mm-hmm. point towards Christ and get out of the way. Same thing with a lot of people will uh, notice what Joseph doesn't say here. He doesn't say that the point of our religion is is modern prophets, living living prophets, right? I think a lot of people mm-hmm. culturally will make that the focus. Like, yay, we have a living prophet and make that even more important than Christ. And no, the point is of these prophets and apostles is to testify concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And of course, mm-hmm. the we are the restored New Testament church. And if you look at the history of the early church in the book of Acts, the resurrection of Christ is the primary proclamation in Acts. It doesn't even go around. They don't even go around. We have, I think, 10 separate sermons in Acts, and none of them focus on Jesus died for your sins, or none of them focus on families can be together forever. All of them focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that resurrection Mm -hmm. is the central proclamation in Acts. And I just, I, I think it's 
culturally, we tend to downplay Easter, right? It's there, but we don't celebrate it liturgically in our church. We don't have different no. pyramids on the altar. We don't have different uh, readings in church. We don't have a different liturgy. We don't have we don't mark it liturgically. Literally, Easter Sunday could be the same as any other Sunday in the church. Although all Sundays, in a sense, are celebrations of the resurrection, of course. But um, mm-hmm. but I kind of miss that we mark out the sacredness and the specialness of Easter. Um, I don't recall the resurrection being at all prominent in the temple. I don't even, I can't even write, I don't have the endowment memorized, but I don't recall at the moment the resurrection of Jesus even being mentioned in the temple. And uh, it's the center of our faith, which tells us that the temple is um, only partial, and it's only um, pointing a piece of of the puzzle. It's not the whole thing. It's Mm -hmm. only clarifying a few pieces of the puzzle. And I just love the resurrection because of the empty tomb. Like the women showed up there and encountered the emptiness of the tomb. And that empty tomb is the most important space and time in the history of the world. It's It splits like a watershed uh, everything, right? Um, it turns everything upside mm-hmm. down. I just love how the emptiness of the tomb can remedy the emptiness of my heart. That which is caused by sin, oppression, uh, anything in the world, uh, in our mortal world, all of that can be remedied by the emptiness of the tomb because it says that God is not done. God can surprise us. God can overturn things. God can act Mm -hmm. contrary to nature. Ooh, God's being unnatural. Oh, dear. Um, (laughs) The unnatural. Unnatural, yeah. Love that word. Love but anyway, word. so I had two areas of focus for us today. The first one is one. Well, hold on, oh. Derek. I do want to uh, add a witness to uh, what you said about, you know, our distractions from the resurrection or distractions from the centrality yeah. of the resurrection to our faith. Um, you know, this is in this is actually in Luke 10, and it uses the story of uh, Mary and Martha to kind of mm-hmm. make that point mm-hmm. or rather to uh, add a witness to the point that you made before about all these other things that we do, um, you know, that are part of our faith, but nonetheless are only appendages to it and not the uh, point of it. Um, I started doing this thing where I watch out for the, for the, uh, for the butts of the Bible. I think it was either you or somebody Mm -hmm. else on a podcast who does this thing. But I, uh, I was enamored with, uh, this, uh, but in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, uh, where it says, but Martha was cumbered about much serving mm-hmm. and then came to the Savior. This is that whole story of Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha being uh, bothered about uh, Mary sitting at Jesus's feet while Martha is like trying to take care of things at her house. And uh, I just love like what I like is one translation just uh, marks her as being distracted by mm-hmm. all the preparations mm-hmm. that had to be made. And I love that word distraction because, you know, you've used that word distraction in terms of how we use uh, parts of our covenant or these different aspects of our faith, whether it be the word of wisdom or whether it be the temple, whatever else, to not pay attention to the Jesus that's right in front of us. Now, that's not to say that Martha's preparations weren't her means of service and not her brand of ministry. Martha was doing good things, um, godly things, 
useful things. She she absolutely was, but she nonetheless came to him and asked what was happening happening in Luke ten forty. Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she should help me. At this point, Jesus does teach her a lesson and reminds her what this is all about in the first place. Martha, Martha, saying her name twice, a little bit of a rebuke. Um, and rather than applaud her work ethic, he chides her for basically, so according to uh, Liz Curtis Higgs, she says that his concern, meaning the Savior's, was not for the state of her home and her table, but for the state of her soul and her heart. So this was a gentle rebuke from the Savior. And he goes on to say, that it's, it's not because what she did was unimportant or unnecessary, but because Martha thought her efforts were of greater significance than Mary's. And Mary's efforts were indeed the better part. One thing is needful, the Savior says, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. That's the, uh, that's the verse 42. And I feel like all of us can be Martha at some point. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. uh, worry about all these dozens of reasons to be unhappy or all these dozens of reasons to not focus on the Savior. And then we might feel overworked or underappreciated. And maybe that's why, you know, these sisters are in initially introduced to us side by side. So we can kind of see the uh, distinction between them. But the things that we actually need are actually mm -hmm. a very short list, very short list. And uh, Martha thought Christ had need of her and her services, but Mary knew it was that she needed Christ and that all of us needed Christ. So at this point, we're learning the valuable lesson that you just taught us, Derek, which is that one thing is needful. It is the Savior. We can distract ourselves by all these other, all these other things, but they are unnecessary in comparison to what Mary was doing, which was paying attention right. to the Savior, which is the focus of everything in the first place. So sorry to uh, interrupt, oh, but no, I just yeah, wanted to make sure that sense. while it was, and you, if you look at it was, Jesus's ministry, he he's all about priorities. He's all about recentering people and deepening the ethical commitment to love for God and love for neighbor, and mm -hmm. certain ritual or ceremonial components are not the the importance. And he got gets mad at people who hypocritically uh, take care of these externals, but don't actually miss the whole if they miss the whole point makes no sense mm -hmm. um correct so yeah i will so i had two areas of focus like we're already half an hour in and i'm still doing pre preliminaries but whoops <laughs> Can, so, like 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 we're even surprised at this point <laughs> so i i had two areas of focus for today number one is the women who were the witnesses of the cross the burial the empty tomb, and the resurrection appearances of Christ. And number two is how the resurrection turns power, precedent, and presuppositions upside down. Nothing is impossible with God. And these two areas of focus are connected because God arranged it so that women would be the witnesses. And we have this unbroken chain of eyewitness testimony of witnesses seeing the arrest of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, then the burial. So they knew which tomb it was. There's no, oops, they went to uh -huh. the wrong tomb. Uh, then we had women witnesses of the empty tomb and then these resurrection appearances of Christ. Like we have an unbroken chain of testimony covering all of these things. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I love that it's, that, that we have it uh, turned upside down. It wasn't uh, Herod Antipas 
who who got the news. It wasn't Pilate who got the news. It was these women uh, who came at the uh, early on the first day of the week, came to the tomb. And it reminds me so much of the birth narrative in Luke. So let's remember that in Luke's narrative, the good news, the announcement by the angel of the birth of the Christ child, the Messiah, it did not appear in the central halls of power. It, this was heralded to lowly shepherds. Uh, and I think it's so fitting that when the gospel breaks into the world, it doesn't break in from the central halls of power. It breaks in from the margins, those who are uh, least in society, and so yes, sir. Yeah, I also want to name that. What well, what's going on with this is like why part of the reason why that we have these women witnesses of the resurrection and the cross is that all the male disciples ran away, with the exception of John the beloved, who was standing there at the foot of the cross, as uh, the Gospel mm-hmm. of John says. Mm-hmm. But other than that. The, the the men all ran away, and it was the women who provided mm-hmm. the continuous witness of uh, of the cross, including including the mother Mary, the mother of the Lord, was there at the cross. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that mm-hmm. must have been, yeah, that must have been something. But I just want to also name that there's something interesting because the Gospel of John marks out the beloved disciple as peculiar in some way. Now people say, well, that can't be anything. Special because God, because Jesus loves everyone. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus loves everyone. But if you name someone as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's going to mark out a person. It do, if that's the kind of love that's not, well, Jesus loves everyone because that wouldn't mark out a person. Jesus had a special, intimate relationship of some kind with someone of the same gender. Now, I'm not saying that they were gay in the modern sense. I'm not saying that they had a sexual relationship. But I am saying this was a new kind of family, and it is the beloved disciple that was chosen to be the adopted son to help take care of the Virgin Mary after she, uh, um, uh, after Jesus died, right? And so this is the whole mm-hmm. woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And then we've got, Mary. And so basically Jesus is taking his partner and saying, you got to take care of my mom. And and I just want to name that all the other male disciples ran away. And so here we have in the Easter story, all these possibilities broke, broken open. And let's get into some texts. I probably don't have time to read the whole text. I would love to read um, all of these te- uh, texts, but if we look at ver- Luke 24, verses 1 through 11, I'm just gonna, going to summarize it. So we've got women going to the tomb, uh, finding the stone rolled away, but then they see the uh, empty tomb, The bi- there's no body. They were pl- perplexed about this. According to Luke, two men in dazzling white appear, and then these women were frightened, and then... The men said to the women, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has been raised. And you know what? The women believed that. Okay? Well, the women believed. The women Mm -hmm. remembered. And then, Mm -hmm. Luke, here it is. I'm just going to read verses 9 through 11. uh, Quote, 
And when and this is from the New English translation. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe them. And uh, now the pronouns in English, uh, and they did not believe them, the they is, is uh, clearly the disciples, and they did not believe them. The, the them is feminine plural in Greek. So it's very clear that mm. the apostles did not believe the women because their words seemed like pure nonsense. Now, this is going to be real familiar. This is, this is thousands of years. We're still not mm-hmm. believing the witness of women. And it was only up until recently that women are, were allowed to be witnesses of baptisms in our church. I'm like, there's no reason that, that, that we should have gotten that one wrong. I want to name <laughs> that, uh, and this is trigger warning, this is um, patriarchy in the ancient world, but Josephus is a uh, a historian of the first century. He was a, a Jewish, writing in for the first century, talking about uh, how the testimony of women was uh, sadly not permitted in Jewish courts of law. And here's what Josephus says: "Quote: Put not trust in a single witness, but let there be three, or at least two." whose evidence shall be accredited by their past lives. From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. Close quote. Well. Well. Uh, And then, so yeah, and part of where I want to go with that is, look at the surprising choice. God chooses, God, God chooses the who the who the world would would least choose i i, I can't mm-hmm. underestimate how amazing this is that god would choose those rejected by the world i mean it's mm-hmm. just just amazing how this how this um how this takes place uh what do you think i um i i i want to briefly go back to this point that you made before about the uh, women being at the cross like they are the only continuous witnesses to this mm-hmm. whole thing and from that alone that continuous witness from the cross to this time in the garden to this time where they see the angel proclaim he is mm-hmm. not here they are teaching us one of the most important lessons of this whole experience uh, which is wherever jesus is go there. Wherever he leads, follow him. Whatever uh, pain you're enduring, keep your eyes on Jesus. Even when hope seems gone, stay close to Jesus. Like this whole narrative is like only the women are there this entire time and they are just following Jesus around this entire time. So like also, um, I I don't know if you want to spend any particular time on Mary Magdalene, but you know, you consider her history all the all the women, first of all, like we have to acknowledge that not only was their station lower in, you know, ancient Mediterranean society, but like just being present at the crucifixion site, even being seen mourning or sympathizing with an enemy of the state, they could have been killed, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be one of the reasons that the 
rest of the disciples had run away, but, you know, the women stayed close. I mean, they stayed close to Jesus at the peril of their own lives, which is just incredibly admirable. But um, the reason I bring up Mary Magdalene in particular is you consider her past, uh, particularly somebody who had demons cast out of her, somebody who had, um, I mean, you have to consider, especially when it comes to what she gets to do later on, you know, not just be a witness to, uh, not, not just be present for this whole announcement, but also be the first witness of the resurrected Christ and not only get to proclaim the message that he is risen, but also that he has ascended. That is an incredible honor for somebody, for, for anybody. But how, how like the Savior is this for him to make an apostle to the apostle of a woman, somebody who had infirmities, somebody who used to be with demons? How like the Savior is it is that to call somebody like that to be an apostle to the apostles? Yeah, I want to go back and read Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Sometime afterward, he went on through towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities. Or illnesses is another way of translating this word. Mary, called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. So here we've got women being coordinated with the twelve. Jesus had women disciples, women who followed him around, women who learned from him. And we see this um, two chapters later in the Luke 10 uh, that you've already mentioned, right? Where Mary is sitting at the feet as a student of a rabbi, sitting at the feet of Jesus learning. And I mm-hmm. saw, uh, let me just pull up this one quote. So the I- IVP, the InterVarsity Press New Testament background commentary says, quote, We know of no other women disciples among Jewish teachers in this period. And as far as I know, that's true. I don't know of any rabbis of this period who had women disciples, except for Jesus. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and these are listed. And of course, uh, Mary Magdalene is one of the central one of these women disciples. And we see that she plays a central role in numerous uh, places within the text here being a financial supporter of the ministry, a disciple, a companion of the uh, of the group as they were going around preaching and teaching. And I just think it, I find it so amazing that she ended up, and we're going to get this, we've already gotten this in, the, in Luke chapter 24, mentions Mary Magdalene specifically, but we're going to see another more intimate facet of this story when we get into John. Maybe we should go into John right now. All right. And I don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you look at the John 20, verses 1 through 18, you see something really interesting happening. So in this narrative, uh, it focuses only on Mary Magdalene. There are no other women named at this point of of the narrative for John. Let me pull up 
what what happens here. And what's really interesting is that uh, similarly, Mary Magdalene shows up very early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, and she came to the tomb and it was rolled away. Uh, and then shortly afterward, uh, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved run up, and then they end up uh, uh, going back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and she looked down into the tomb and saw two angels in white, and they asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? And what's interesting is when Mary is named by the narrator here, the narrator of the Gospel of John, She's named several times already. Uh, it's it's the name Maria um, in Greek. So I have to say there's something very interesting that, uh, as far as I know, no English translation of the New Testament does this. But Mary's name is spelt differently in the manuscripts, and most critical texts of the New Testament spell it differently when it appears. So when the narrator uses the name uh it uses the Greek form of her name, Maria, right? The narrator says, well, Mary did this, and Mary stood outside the tomb, Mary did this. But when Jesus shows up, okay, watch this. Jesus turns to her in verse 16, and Mary thinks that he's the gardener, okay? She did not know it was Jesus. But then Jesus turns to her and says, Mariam, Mary in Aramaic. Isn't that interesting that she heard her own name in her own language and the narrator of the Greek New Testament is actually literally spelling this out for us, that she's called Mary uh, every by the narrator, but when Jesus says her name, he says Miriam. And I think it is so amazing that, that, that this is this touching detail that you only get if you read the Greek New Testament. And I think this intimacy is what caused her to realize, oh, this is Jesus. This is the Lord. He is alive again. And she turned to him and then replied in Aramaic, Rabboni. Uh, so we get this, this lovely depth of intimacy. We don't get very much Aramaic uh, quoted in the Greek New Testament. We get it here and there, but I think we get touches of this original intimacy when you see these languages uh, uh, quoted. But what's interesting is the, the, the commission, okay? So Jesus says to her, Miriam, and then she turns and says, Rabboni, and then Jesus replied, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go. I love this go. This is a commission. This is an apostolic commission this is a setting apart mm -hmm. here go to my brothers and tell them i am ascending to my father and your father to my god and to your god and then verse 18 mary magdalene came and informed the disciples i have seen the lord and she told them what jesus had said to her isn't this amazing she is the apostle to the apostles she mm -hmm. is she had a new message too. yes like you just highlighted something that I totally missed. She not only proclaimed that, you know, he was risen, but he is ascending to the Father. She has she has new information. She was new information. A revelator the to the men. Okay, there's yes. a lot of men who don't think that they can learn anything from women, and probably those apostles were some of them, right? 
But here we've got a case where Jesus... <laughs> they were some of them. They were, yeah, we see that. They were some of them. Like, let's just say they that, were. Say what right? it is. But Jesus chose and appointed Mary to be the apostle to the apostles to deliver a revelation, right? She was a prophet, seer, and revelator in this case. She literally saw the Lord when the when the apostles hadn't yet, in, in, right? Uh, she was a prophet. She had a message from Jesus to the apostles. She was a revelator, prophet, seer, and revelator, like literally. What more do you want? She was an apostle to the apostles, a prophet, seer, and a revelator. I just find that, that we no. will miss it if we don't name it. Dude. Speaking of prophets, can we briefly go back to twenty four Luke twenty four? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, sorry, man. We can come back to this, but like while you're saying prophets, seers, and revelators, I just got to name something that I noticed in the road to Emmaus narrative mm-hmm. um, on this during this reading. Um, the Savior, there, there's like something to be gained from this, especially regarding women, considering the role they played in the fact that they carried this task of delivering the news of the risen Lord to the disciples. This is what I Mm -hmm. noticed after the savior asks the disciples what they're talking about and what happened. They proceeded to say the following. They replied the things about Jesus of Nazareth. This is verse 19 in Luke 24, Mm -hmm. who was prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now at that point, I already got questions Like, does that statement of hope betray some kind of doubt about what the Savior himself had prophesied, that he would be crucified and then raised on the third day? Not entirely sure until we start reading verse 22. Mm -hmm. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And then when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels, a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Right. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Mm -hmm. So notice, first of all, that they say a vision of angels. I went to other like translations of uh, this verse to make sure that this wasn't just like a peculiarity that was in the uh, King James version or in the, uh, the NRSV, but that's not what it was. That is not. What that was not the case. All nearly all of these translations say that they saw a vision of angels, and that's not what it was. They saw angels, not a dream, not a mm-hmm. vision, actual angels. And uh, all the others say, I mean, I already talked about the translations, but these disciples, though they did concede some male disciples found the tomb to be empty, the skepticism comes back when they say that nobody saw Jesus, hence the rebuke that Jesus gives in verse 25. And notice the words that he uses. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Right after they mischaracterize the witness of uh, the women and express doubt, Jesus jumps on them. It may be a it may be a stretch to say that the women mentioned here were included in Jesus's declaration of the prophetic witnesses already given, but I don't think, considering what the role of a prophet is and what these women to this point have done, it's not that much of a stretch. To declare the good news of Christ and to be a witness of Christ is to engage in the prophetic. And though Christ may not have been referencing them directly, there is still a lesson here to heed the prophetic. And that includes these women whom these disciples uh, disregarded. Yeah. And it reminds me of 
when people in power don't believe trans folks when they testify about their gender. Like, if anyone knows their own gender, it's that person themselves. They, they're they the number one expert. Like, how can you tell them no? Or if someone with... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Someone who has an access need, right? A disabled person who has an access need testifies about their need and you say, nope, you don't need. Like, there's just so many ways that this not believing someone on their own lived experience happens all the time. Right. And it comes back to bite the people that don't believe. It does. Like, yep. In this case, this led to a stern rebuke from Jesus for not believing the people who had experienced what they said they had experienced. And this isn't even the only time this happens in the text. Just the only, just one of the most prominent times it happens in the Eastern narrative text. Mm-hmm. I just find it so amazing. I can't underestimate how important it is that Mary Magdalene is is chosen to be the apostle to the apostles. It's not just some minor detail that's like, oh, that's a little curiosity. This is central to the story because Jesus chose women to be his disciples. He taught women. He um, engaged women. He believed women. He uh, was rebuked by women and then had his mind changed by women. Um, and the two women I'm thinking <laughs> of right now are are Mary, his mother, in John chapter 2, and then the Syrophoenician woman in uh, Mark chapter 7 and Matthew mm. chapter 15. So, yeah, like, he listened to women, right? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sort of romanticizing, saying everything that we have as recorded in the Gospels is perfectly pro women. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we have the seeds of liberation here. We have the seeds of a conversation here that we are not having in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and we absolutely should, because Jesus mm-hmm. chose Mary Magdalene to be a center piece of the story, and then chose him to be a witness to the most amazing story ever told, and then chose her to be the first one to tell it. The first one mm. to tell the story. Like, this is this, mm-hmm. is this can't just be ignored, right? We cannot have Easter without, uh, without naming the, these things. Uh, let so, me just go back to, let's see, was there anything else I was going to say about John chapter 20? I think I said most of what I was going to say. Um, other than yeah, she went and got, she went back and was and did function as an apostle to the apostles, and I love. Let's see, it must have been last week we talked about many of the women prophets in the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and I made the point that every dispensation in the Bible has had women prophets. We had Eve, if you count Eve, you had Sarah among the patriarchs, you had. Uh, in every dispensation you had women prophets. And here's what I want to name is that Acts 2, verse 17. This is really interesting. Stay with me now. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Like it is literally a prophecy that the Latter-day Church will have women prophets. Like, people thinking that, I'm that oh, that, that change will never happen, this can never happen. This is literally, we've had women prophets in every dispensation. We've had women uh, serving uh, priesthood. 
functions with priesthood authority already in the church, uh, mm-hmm. and we have not had them ordained to a priesthood office uh, outside the temple, but we will, we will, of course, we will. It is is as a mark of the uh, restored church. And uh, and who's to say they're not already prophesying now? Right, right. And I think maybe it is. And maybe this is another case of uh, brethren not listening. Uh, and just to mm-hmm. remind everyone, we've got Phoebe, the, the woman who's a deacon in Romans chapter 16, and Junia, the woman apostle, who was noteworthy or um, among the apostles, according to Paul in Romans 16, verse 7. And then there's the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. She was a missionary to her people, and many Samaritans believed because of her testimony. And you know who was shocked that he, that he was talking to a woman? It was his own male disciples were shocked that he was speaking to a Samaritan woman. I want to talk about, um, so there's this one quote. I just quickly found a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said, Easter is not about immortality, but about resurrection from a death that is a real death with all its frightfulness and horrors. Resurrection from a death of the body and the soul of the whole person. Resurrection by the power of God's mighty act. This is the Easter message, close quote. Like you can't do Easter without the reality of Good Friday. Like this, it was it was a barbaric uh, hate crime, identity-based lynching. It was awful, gruesome. Uh, he, it was an, in, a way of an intimidating... Crucifixion was a way of intimidating and impressed people by the example of uh, some. And you cannot have Easter without going through the cross. Like, I don't know how this, this happens. Um, we, as Latter-day Saints, typically don't go to church on Good Friday. I'm like, why not? Why not? That is one of the most important days of the year. And we're not in church. Uh, I don't know why. But um, I think part of that has to do with some of the historical development of of the way American religion played out in the 19th century. Not so much any doctrinal reason, but I think it's just some historical curiosities. Um, and Easter really wasn't a big deal among the Puritans, for example. In fact, they, they didn't celebrate Easter. But, but I think that's the environment in which we grew up as a people and that's i think we really need to get back to more easter more easter i love more easter we need more easter and in order to do more easter we need to do more good friday and in order to do both of those Mm. well we have to to listen to what god is doing marvelously among the marginalized of of any category and why and this is why That list that we talked about earlier, those two lists, the list of true prophets and the list of false prophets is so problematic because there's so many marginalized folks on on the the right-hand column, the one that were labeled— Nearly all of them are. What? Nearly all of them are. Yeah, nearly all of them are. And I think that's how they, in some cases, can see farther, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the irony is I saw someone—I can't remember now who who, who this first— came came up with this but someone quoted uh the text that says in from acts 2 that says your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and someone said well only one of those lists has daughters (laughs) isn't that amazing well 
And I guarantee you, I, I promise all of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the church of the future looks like one list, and the church of the past looks like the other. And it's very clear which list is which. One of those mm-hmm. lists represents the past. Um, men who grew up mostly in the 1930s and 40s. I'm not saying there's something problem with being old, right? I'm not. I'm not ageist here. Like I, I love. Uh, um, you can still be old. Like look at Bernie. Look at Bernie Sanders. He's old and he's he's progressive. Look at um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like she was way more woke than I was. I cannot. I cannot just look at old people and say, like you're you're behind the times, uh, because mm-hmm. this, this stuff isn't new, right? Anyway, so. Let me just stop talking here. I want to hear more from you about what your your thoughts are. <laughs> I mean, I think I basically uh, covered what I wanted to cover with regard to. Uh, oh wow, we did know. this within an hour. I'm so I'm so surprised. Yeah, as am I. But I am scrolling through to make sure there's nothing else to be. Yeah, let me just quote this. Um, let me just quote this paragraph. This is from. The uh, True to Our Native Land, an African-American New Testament commentary. Here's what it says. Quote, Jesus dispatches Mary to announce his resurrection to his terrified comrades in hiding in Jerusalem. Mary heralds the first Easter as the first Easter herald. African-American women recognized Mary Magdalene as the first to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, and they proclaimed claimed her as the patron saint of their public voice. African Methodist Episcopal preacher Jerina, I think that's how you pronounce her name, Lee vindicates her contested call to preach by appealing to the biblical example of Mary Magdalene. Quote, Did not Mary first preach the risen Savior? And is not the doctrine of the resurrection the very first climax of Christianity? In defense of her right to speak in public as a woman, antebellum essayist, orator, and political philosopher, Maria Stewart asked rhetorically, did not Mary Magdalene first declare the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Close quote. Uh, and there's there's more in that text, but, uh, but yeah, there's some really cool stuff there. And I just want to name that some of these women, uh, I, I don't know if I said this, but back when we read the eight, uh, Mary Magdalene, but also Joanna, the wife of Cusa, was one of the witnesses of the resurrection as well. So um, we have at least five or six named women in, depending on how you you count the Marys, right? It's complicated. But we have five or six or perhaps even seven named women who are witnesses of the resurrection, including one of them is probably Mary, the mother of our Lord. She saw the crucifixion. And boy, I imagine how vindicated she was when she saw her dead son rise again. Like, wow. That is what I want to hear every general conference. I want to hear that the Lord can do the impossible, that can work the unworkable, that can imagine the unimaginable. Some people can't imagine change in the church. Boy, God can imagine change, right? So... Let us uh, hope and pray with a an Easter faith. Mm. 
Easter faith, one that inspires change, one that tells us to follow the Savior wherever they may be found, one that heeds the prophetic witness of the least of these, of the women, of um, those on the underside of history, underside of society. There is a lot that uh, right. this perspective teaches us about not only how to uh, respond to people around us, especially women, but also how to receive and where we can find uh, these messages of Easter, these messages mm-hmm. of the resurrected Savior, where the Savior can be found. So I wish everyone a happy Easter and a very joyous resurrection of our Lord this week.